For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word for more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thus says God's word. Heavenly Father, we want to be like Peter, James, John, standing on the mountain of transfiguration. God, when they looked and somehow you opened their eyes to see realities that were more real than the ones that they had previously experienced, God, and they saw your glory, they saw your radiance, they saw your majesty, Lord God. They saw in that moment both the law and the prophets become submissive to you, Lord God, as the superior voice speaking. So God, we ask that you would make us like that, that you would, through your word, through the voice from heaven, that you would cause us to be those who behold your glory this morning, God. Let us see you, Lord God. Reveal to us your nature, your goodness, your mercy, your kindness towards us through your holy word. God, I pray for just your abundant help, Lord God, with my stammering tongue, with my wavering thoughts, with my insecure emotions, Lord God. I pray that you would help me with all of those things and that you would be uh, the rock which I cling to this morning. God, that everything that comes out of my mouth would be pleasing and glorifying to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, I want to welcome everyone who's watching online. We're so glad that you're joining us. We want to invite you on back as soon as you feel safe to do so. We would love to have you back with us. We are really, really, really missing you. So I hope you can join us soon. Um, So... This week, um, we're, be- we're beginning a new series, and um, it's one that I've actually pondered and thought about for several months, actually, and been w- wanting to see kind of how it developed, and it was based on the idea of Jesus fulfilling the roles that were illustrated in the life of the people of Israel and the Jewish nation but Jesus perfectly fulfilling the roles of of our prophet, our priest, and our king. And we want to understand these roles of prophet, priest, and king in the Bible. We want to know what purpose that those roles, very vital to the life of the Jews, what roles they served. And we want to see, most importantly, how Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills all of those roles as our Redeemer. Now, I want to finish at the, at the tail end of this series showing you how the church 
now serves in these roles for the world today. But today what we're going to do is we're going to kick this off by looking at the prophets of the Old Testament. What you got to understand is the great privilege, privilege that you have of owning, of using, and hopefully reading a Bible because they've been printed and produced, mass-produced, the greatest best-selling book of all time. The privilege that you have is not a privilege that all people of all times have had. That's an, a, a, a very obvious thing to understand. Um, before there was a Bible, God spoke to his creation, to his creatures, directly and oftentimes in an audible voice. And this began in, way back in the Garden of Eden is where we first see this with Adam and Eve. Even though the Bible never calls Adam a prophet per se, we see with Adam's relationship with God something very significant to the role of a prophet in every other prophet throughout the Old Testament. That, that Adam was the first human being to receive the word of God. God gave him his very word uh, in there in the garden. You guys have heard it. He gave him revelation, clear revelation about their purpose, their destiny, who they were. He defined for them what humanity in the image of God was. He said to them to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to have dominion. And with that, in this uh, transmission of God's word, there was also a prohibition and a warning associated with that prohibition he said of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die now we all know most likely in this room how that story ended they mishandled god's word that they had been that they had received they were deceived themselves and mishandled god's word they were not faithful stewards of the word they had received, which is a primary function of a prophet to faithfully handle the word as you, as you receive it. And, and when they were deceived, they absolutely rejected the authority of God. They abandoned their reverence for what God had said. But even so, even with that seeming catastrophe happening within the human race, God determined that he would always, always have someone who would uh, hear and proclaim his word. And we should be very grateful that that's true. That God ensured that his word would be transmitted from generation to generation. It was, it was his, his priority he placed on his word. And so we don't get very far in the Bible past the story of creation and Adam and Eve in the fall until we come to a guy named Noah. And Peter, several centuries later, looks back at Noah and he actually calls him a preacher of righteousness. And his reasoning was, was that because of he's hearing from God about what to do in preparation for the flood to build the ark and, and he's, he's proclaiming God's righteousness to the generation he lived in, he is, a, he is once again, just like Adam received God's word, is proclaiming it. And we know the story. God spoke. Noah, build an ark. And as Cosby put it years ago, he looked up at God and said, what's an ark? God spoke and Noah obeyed. And he reverenced the word of God. And by doing so, he saved the lives of himself and his family. 
And then we see God, a couple chapters later, sovereignly choosing a, a man named Abram, who became known to us as Abraham. And he chooses Abraham out of the desert. And once again, he gives him, he transmits to him his word. And in this case, his word is a promise of epic proportions. Beginning with Abraham, the Old Testament prophets are characterized by two things. Their handling of God's word and by prayer. How did Abraham receive? How did he handle the word of God? We talked about handling it with reverence. Well, this is what Abraham did. He received this incredible epic promise from God. The promise was this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the important part. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And see, the the key was not that God gave him that promise. The Bible tells us the key was that God gave him that promise and Abraham believed it. And he believed that promise. And the Bible tells us both in Genesis and in Paul's writing that in in the act of believing what God had said, of reverencing his word, God declared him righteous. Now, we'll talk about it in a second, but if you knew Abraham's life, he did some things that were very unrighteous. But there was something about his handling of God's word, of his throwing his full belief into God's word that God says, you're righteous. Because he believed God. And the Bible says, God counted his belief to him as righteousness. Well, what about prayer? Abraham was a guy if you read his story in Genesis, who was constantly in communication with God. But even more than that, he interceded on God's, or on, on, with God on the behalf of others. He went to God and he said, hey, I want you to be aware of these needs and to, to move on them. He did this for his son, Lot, or his son uh, um, uh, Ishmael. He did it for his nephew Lot when Lot was living in unrighteous Sodom and Sodom was about to be judged. One of the best stories of this is Abimelech, who was the king of the Philistines, took Sarah, Abraham's wife, as his own. And And when he did this, it wasn't Abimelech's fault, so to speak, because Abraham, that that uh, paragon of virtue and backbone, had told Abimelech that Abraham was, or that Sarah was his sister. He thought she's so smoking hot that everyone's going to take her, for, or kill me, and take her from me anyway. And so he he lied. He said, "This is my sister." So Abimelech did what people do. They said, "Hey, she's smoking hot. I want her for my own." And he did that to save his own neck. Ladies, how? Cold would it be at your house if your husband did such a thing? But God had separated Abraham and Sarah, and even more specifically, Sarah's womb, apart to himself for his own purposes. And so he wasn't going to turn a blind eye to this. So so God confronts Abimelech, and he, he Abimelech, pleads his innocence in this matter when God confronts him. He says, look, I haven't even laid a finger on her yet. But but because Abraham and Sarah were holy to God, he told the king, listen to these words carefully, now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And what does that prophet give him the privilege? It says, and he shall pray for you and you shall live. 
So the, Abraham was a man of the word. He was a man of prayer. Moses was the man God selected to lead Abraham's descendants out of slavery after they'd been there for 400 years. He led them to Mount Sinai after they were delivered where, he, where they received God's law through Moses. His word again, his word is coming through Moses. And he showed them how to live acceptably before God. And this law is important. This transmission of God's word is so important because it revealed, the law revealed to the people of God, the the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel, it revealed God's unequaled holiness. It showed the Jews, if you are going to approach God, you just don't walk into his courts. There's a way to approach him. And the law showed them how to do that. The law set them apart as God's people, and it designated God as their God. There was no other people like them on the face of the earth. And Moses proclaimed God's will to the people without any filters. He, he Like Abraham, when the people would stumble, he would be the one that would pray for them, to intercede for them. And so on the basis of of Moses's prayers. If you're not familiar with the story, you can see this over and over again. On the basis of Moses's prayers, when these people deserved wrath, they received mercy because Moses prayed. The weight of Moses's role, however, was very, very heavy. Let me just put it to you like this. You would not have wanted to be Moses. Those people were a headache. You think your kids are bad? Those people were a headache. And when Moses, in his frustration, this outburst of his own frustration and temper over the the craziness of these people, when he, in this moment, he failed to follow God's instructions exactly, and it cost him dearly. God judged him, not allowing him to enter the promised land that he had marched towards for 40 years. Instead, he died outside the promised land, looking in from afar. And with this judgment on Moses, God defined, and pay very, uh, careful attention to this, God defined how the prophets of God were to handle his word. This is what he said to Moses when Moses lost his temper. God said, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I had given them. See, God, years before, had told Moses to take his staff, strike a rock, and out of that rock, miraculously, would pour a river of water to, to give water to all the people who drank, and, or, or to drink. The, the, oh, three million, probably, Israelites, and they drank from this rock. In this instance, God had told Moses to demonstrate grace by, by coming to the rock and speaking to it, and, and water would flow out, and all the people would be, would be refreshed, their thirst would be quenched. And Moses has his outburst, and he says, you stiff-necked people, I can't believe I have to put up with you. And he takes that staff, and he, and he, and he hits the rock. Water still comes out. God's mercy is displayed. The people drink, but God is not pleased. And he tells Moses, you didn't believe in me. I told you how to do this, Moses. And you, in your own mind, had a, a, a different uh, method. And, and, and by not believing me, you did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. Why is this important? Because God is saying, Moses, I gave you my word. 
You added to it, you subtracted from it. Either way, when you did that, you did not show me as holy. See, proclaiming God's word, the prophets were to demonstrate their belief in God's holiness and his uniqueness by their own obedience. They were not to be above the expectations placed on the rest of the people. That's still true today. See, failing to obey, failing to obey what God has said on the one who claims to be his mouthpiece, the failing to obey is to make a full assault on the majesty of God before the very eyes of the people that they were to lead. And that's what Moses did. He assaulted God's holiness by not simply obeying him. Y'all with me? And therefore, because of this, the law itself lays out clear expectations and definitions for people who would claim to be prophets. Listen to this line carefully. It is not a small thing. It is not a light matter to claim to be speaking the word of the living God. It is a very serious matter. Deuteronomy puts it like this, Deuteronomy 18. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now let me ask you a question. What if presuming to speak for God still carried the death penalty today? How many churches would be bloodbaths? How many TV ministries would have to go off the air? I'm going to pick on somebody here, not to offend or to be mean, but it, it was public, so I'm going to point it out. Kenneth Copeland recently was on the television claiming authority to blow the coronavirus away. And he dramatically blew into the, wind of, into the wind, calling it the breath of God. And yet, after he did this, untold thousands of people have died from the coronavirus. Is that problematic for anybody besides me? When he did that, and nothing happened... It proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Kenneth Copeland was not speaking with God's authority, but he was speaking from his own corrupt imagination. Because when God speaks, things happen. Psalm 29, I wish I had time to read the whole psalm for you. The whole psalm is about the voice of the Lord. What happens when God speaks? And Psalm 29 says, The voice of the Lord is powerful. It says the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. What does that look like in real life when God speaks? Well, it looks like this. Daniel prophesied over a a span of hundreds of years. He prophesied the rise and falls of four successive world empires. And guess what? It came to pass. The voice of the Lord is powerful. Jeremiah prophesied that the Jews would be taken into captivity in Babylon. And guess what? They were. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Elijah prophesied that it wouldn't rain until he said so. I'm kind of thinking he's doing that right now. Elijah prophesied it wouldn't rain until he said so. And it didn't rain for three years. 
Isaiah prophesied the coming of the Messiah in vivid detail 600 years after he said the words. He prophesied his birth. And we know how that turned out, don't we? The word of the Lord is powerful. The word of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord. And all of these men, this is what you need to know, just like today, there's, there's, there's true and there's false. There's light and there's dark. All of these men in the days of the Old Testament had false counterparts. The wise men in Nebuchadnezzar's court, the ones who were paid the best in Daniel's day, could not interpret the king's dream. But Daniel could. So-called prophets in Jerusalem in in Jeremiah's day kept telling the Jews, oh, you're God's favorite people. You're never going to be exiled. But they were. Elijah challenged a group of false prophets of Baal to, to somehow rouse him from his sleep and get him to rain down fire from heaven. But it was only Elijah's God, the true God of Israel, who answered by fire. Elijah or Isaiah eventually in, in, in frustration about all these prophecies was sawn in half. And yet the Messiah appeared exactly as he predicted. See, determining the genuineness of a prophet is simple. Moses said in that same chapter in Deuteronomy 18, that if what they predicted did not come to pass, they were not speaking for God. In fact, just the opposite. If it doesn't come to pass, they mock God's word by speaking falsely for him or by blinding, blindingly supporting those who do uh, you know, claim to speak for him. I was in a church one time and there was a man who, who uh, kind of somehow had begun to be recognized in this group of people as a prophet and he was always... Um, you know, claiming very specific things that were going to happen with a, with a great authoritative voice. And to my knowledge of the hundreds of things that he, he uh, prophesied very specifically, nothing ever happened. Not a single thing. Not, not then, not now, not ever. And what does that tell us about his prophetic credentials? They were false. They were empty. They were meaningless. Moses said, a prophet like that is nothing to fear. But none of these men that we've mentioned, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, none of them, get this carefully, wanted to be the focal point of their prophetic ministry. What they were actually doing is prophesying something greater. They were prophesying a coming reality. Jesus recognized this when he said this in Matthew 13, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it but he's saying to his disciples he's saying guys the things that you're seeing right before your eyes all of those guys that were so faithful in the old testament this is what they were really after and they didn't get there but you're here though god had faithful inspired men to keep his word before his people the prophets themselves like you and i were just cracked human vessels But something better was to come. Something infinitely better was waiting in the wings. Moses prophesied about it. He's speaking for God. In God's first person voice in Deuteronomy 18, he says this, I will raise up for them, the people, the people of God, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. 
And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses says this, he says, a prophet like him is coming. Moses was unique, even among the prophets. God spoke to him, but God did not speak to him primarily in dreams or in visions. God spoke to him face to face like a man speaks with his friend. Can you even imagine? Anything that Moses shared with the people of Israel, he had received firsthand straight from the mouth of God himself. And now there's a promise. I will raise up a prophet for you like Moses. Well, Jesus was that prophet. And how do we know that? Because he too had a face-to-face relationship unfiltered with God the Father. He said in John 5, 19, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus, being one with God, didn't have a separate agenda from God the Father. Do you hear me? Sometimes you'll hear this hogwash about the mean God of the Old Testament and Jesus, the nice God of the New Testament. Let me tell you something. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And the Father is the God of the New Testament. They were, they were both working each other, or, or not each other's, but the same plan. They had no separate agenda. Jesus proves that in John 12. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a command. Remember what Moses said? I will put my words in his mouth. He's told me what to say and what to speak. God, Moses prophesied that God would put his very worth in the, uh, words in the mouth of his coming prophet. There would be no miscu- uh, miscommunication about God's will. People would know what God was saying. People would know what God wanted because this prophet who was coming would make it clear. What I'm saying to you is that the coming prophet would speak in the fullness of God's authority. He was not an agent of God. He was God. And because of this, everything the prophet said, and get this carefully, because it still applies to you today, everything that this coming prophet, who we now know is Jesus, everything he would say would demand a response. You cannot, none of you, none of those outside in the world, none in any other churches, can look to Jesus Christ and say, I can take him or leave him. Jesus Christ, just in the hearing of his words, demands a response. Advice, you can take it or leave it. But a proclamation, you have to respond to. And Jesus' words, the very words of God himself, Demand from you a response. You can't take him or leave him. Obedience to him is required. And failure to obey his words meant destruction. Moses said, whoever does not obey him, I will require it. In other words, I will hold him accountable 
for his disobedience. And this is how Jesus put it. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Just as Moses had said, if you want your house to stand, listen to Jesus and obey him. In the words that we read earlier, Danae read to us from Peter's letter, he's looking back at one of the most impactful moments that he had with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And I referred to it in my prayer before we began. And these are the events that transpired on the Mount of Transfiguration. I remember when I was a child in 1979, my parents took me to the to what you guys probably know, or those of you that are familiar with it, as the Jesus film. It's been, it was a film that was produced that year uh, about the life of Christ taken from the book of Luke, and it's been uh, translated into hundreds of languages and, and shared all over the world. Many people have come to know Jesus because of this, this movie. My parents took me to see it when it was still in the theaters. And in this film, the, this scene is depicted this, this moment with Peter, James, and John where they go to the mountain of transfiguration. And it, it sticks in my mind. I can still see that scene as it was depicted in my mind because I, although my parents had me in church all of my life, I did not remember ever hearing that story until I saw that movie. And so on the mount of transfiguration, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John high upon this mountain all by themselves, just the four of them to pray. And the Bible says when they got there and began praying that suddenly Jesus' face shone like the sun and that his clothes, in Mark's word, became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. He was shining. And more than that, Moses and Elijah, Old Testament prophets, both of whom had been in heaven for hundreds of years, appeared with Jesus on that mountain and spoke to him, as Luke tells us, of, of his departure, which was about, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the disciples were terrified by this spectacle. <clears throat> and Peter, not knowing what to say, did what he always did and spoke anyway. <laughs> anybody know anybody who, when they don't know what to say, go ahead and talk? That's me, I think, sometimes. And he spoke anyway, and he said to Jesus, he said, Master, it is good for us to be here. Looky here, Jesus. This is awesome. You're here. You're glowing like the sun. Moses and Elijah are here. This is awesome. Why don't we just make this a permanent thing? Peter says, let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And at that very moment, as the words are coming out of Peter's mouth. This is what happens. A cloud envelops them all, and the voice of God thunders from heaven and says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now that listen to him meant a lot. First of all, it meant Peter, shut up. Listen to him. But, but I want you to understand that standing there on the mountain was Israel's lawgiver, 
a prophet who gave them the law, and, and, and the, the other prophet who challenged idolatry in the nation and represented the whole ministry of the prophets of Israel, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets standing right there. And, and, and God was saying from heaven, though he had given them the law and the prophets, that things were changing. And now, they were not to subject Jesus to Moses and Elijah. They were, supposed, they were to subject Moses and Elijah to Jesus. Listen to him. Jesus, God the Father, is saying from heaven, Jesus is the main thing. Jesus is my focus. Jesus is the, is the, is the epicenter of all of human history, splitting time right in half. Jesus is the center. The cloud dissipated and Jesus was there with his three trembling disciples all alone. And he instructed them not to tell anyone what had happened until he'd risen from the grave. And so many years later, Jesus, after Jesus had risen and after the, the Holy Spirit's poured out on the church and the church expands all over the world, the known world, Peter looks back on this event and he says this to the people he's writing to. He says, listen to us. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's saying, guys, we... We aren't making this up. It's not hearsay. Hearsay. He said, he said, we saw this. We saw his glory on the mountain. We saw this veil lifted when heaven and earth merged and became one thing. We saw it. We saw Jesus standing there with the representative of the law, the representative of the prophet, and we saw Jesus or Jesus vindicated by the voice of God saying, listen to him. He says, being there with him on the mountain, seeing God's glory, hearing God's face was to them, I love this phrase, it was to them the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What does that mean? Throughout the Old Testament, prophets across many generations had proclaimed that the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Get ready. The Messiah is coming. And now one who was forecast so many times in their writings stood right in their midst and was now residing in their very hearts. The centerpiece of all human history had appeared for all to know. It's not about Moses and Elijah anymore. But Jesus, the Son, has arrived. And Peter gives us this warning. He says, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And what is he saying there? He's saying, guys, focus on this. Jesus was here. He spoke. He is risen. He is ascended to the Father. He is reigning over all the world, all the universe. And you got to pay attention to this because that light is, is taking over greater and greater form until all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. When Jesus appeared, it confirmed the ministry of all the Old Testament prophets. See, they weren't simply sages or wise men. They were mouthpieces for God himself. God was using the Old Testament prophets to tell the people 
to tell them what was going to happen. And Peter declares the otherworldly nature of their predictions. He says, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I told you about the guy at our church. He would just make stuff up and say it with the authority of God's name attached to it. And, and Peter says, that is not prophecy. He said, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Prophecy doesn't start here. It starts there. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, God, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't from one's own thoughts, but from the Spirit of God himself. And through the Old Testament prophets, God faithfully protected his word. He guarded his word from one generation to the next. And he made this clear to Jeremiah when he called him to be a prophet in his youth. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12, God gives this incredible promise. He says, I am watching over my word to perform it. So any government you know, hostile government on the face of the earth that thinks they're going to stomp out the word of God, I say to them, good luck with the tip of my hat. Because one far mightier than all the nations combined has said, I am watching over my word to perform it. I will see what I have declared accomplished is what God is saying. God does not leave his word to the whims of men, but he oversees it until its purposes are completed. So in the final analysis, the prophets of the Old Testament not only proclaimed God's word, but their ministries were a foreshadowing of the one who would embody God's word. He would be the logos, the Greek word logos. It's the living word of God. And we're going to examine Jesus' role of perfectly fulfilling the prophetic ministry in greater detail next week. But I want you to understand that because in him we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, Jesus necessarily changes the way we look at the prophecies of the Old Testament. Please hear me on this. Jesus necessarily changes the way we look at the prophecies in the Old Testament. So we don't stumble on a passage in Daniel or Ezekiel or in the Minor Prophets and try to understand what mysterious or foreboding event they are predicting. Rather, we look at them knowing that we have the the word of prophecy more fully confirmed. We look at them to learn more about what Christ has done and is doing for us. The whole Bible, talked about this with the youth Wednesday night, Genesis to Revelation contains one story And it is the story of Jesus. We don't interpret ancient promises, or ancient prophecies rather, with their promises of land, with borders and earthly kingdoms and temples, but we look to how all of the promises are fulfilled in Christ alone through a new and better covenant. Aren't you grateful for a new and better covenant? And this is what... what, uh, Paul said that, that, you know, says what I said in much more eloquent words. He says, for all the promises, somebody say all the promises, all the promises. Think about what that entails. Genesis to Revelation, for all the promises find their yes in him. Doesn't, they don't find their yes in some antichrist or some temple that's going to be built that doesn't they find their yes and their amen in jesus 
And this is why it is that through him we utter our amen to the glory of God. That's why we look. You know what the word amen means? It means so be it. So we look at Jesus as the one who perfectly fulfills all the promises of God that were ever prophesied. And we look at that with joyful hearts and we go, amen. Jesus has done it. He fulfilled it. He watched over his word to fulfill it. And he completed what he set out to do in Jesus, dying, rising, and reigning. Amen. God isn't passing revelation from prophet to prophet anymore. So he can build some grand climax in the story. Let me tell you something if you don't know it. Jesus is the climax of the story. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And what God has wanted to say, he has said through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews, in closing, puts it like this. He says, long ago, everybody say long ago. In parentheses say, not today. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. When did he do that? Long ago. But in these days, everybody say these days, he has spoken to us by his son. He has spoken to us by his son. What God wants you to know, he wants you to know through, because of, and for the glory of Jesus Christ whom he appointed to be the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. Will you stand with me? I love that Jesus is the living word. I'm grateful that God found faithful men all the way from from Noah to Malachi to, to proclaim his word and 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 guard his word and, and, and until it was fulfilled. But I am so much more grateful that God has spoken to us by his son. I am not looking forward in history to what God is going to do to save me. I am thanking God in a, with a heart of, of overflowing worship for what he has done to save me. And because of that, I don't fear the future. I don't fear COVID, I don't fear Republicans, I don't fear Democrats, I don't fear riots, I don't fear any of that because God has saved me. And my life, the Bible says, the Bible says this, it says, I'm dead. You probably didn't know that. Do you know you're dead? If you believe in Jesus, you're dead. The Bible says it. Book of Colossians says you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Wow. What a promise. So I don't fear anything. I have no reason to fear. My life is hid with Christ in God. So we're going to receive communion. We're going to thank God that God crushed his son on the cross with the willing 
uh, submission of his son. The son wasn't a, an oppo- opposed to that idea. God crushed him so that you might be saved. And that's what we're celebrating with, this, with these elements. Paul is instructing the Corinthians about what this means. And he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said this, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the absolute evidence for us as believers. If you're not a believer, it doesn't mean a thing to you. It's just a snack. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, this is absolute evidence in your fingers right now that God has watched over his word to perform it. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, God gave a promise of a redeemer, of a coming savior, of a Messiah that would rescue you from your sin and absolutely crush the death that you feared so much. And this is symbolic of a kept promise. Amen? He said, this is my body, for you, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's just tell him thank you. Thank you, God, for keeping your promise. Thank you for allowing all of your promises to find their yes and their amen in Jesus. And we shout back our hearty amen to what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I think about God's kept promises in in, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, a book of prophecy. God says these words, he says, Come, let us reason together, and though your sins be red like scarlet, they will soon be white as snow. And we didn't want to come to the table and reason with God. So God did all the negotiating himself. He made the plan. He executed the plan by dying on the cross, by shedding his blood. And his blood, which flowed freely from his veins, washes you whiter than snow, keeping his promise. And all their promises find their yes, find their amen in Christ. Let's take the cup. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. It washes us clean. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You would place your hands in a receiving position. I want to proclaim a a benediction over you, a blessing. I want to put God's name on you, is what God told the, the priests in Aaron's day that they would do with this benediction. So receive the name of the Lord on your life. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.